They've been married for 30 years. He's a pioneer of Catholic lay evangelization, and she has a master's degree in theology. Put on the coffee and get ready to open the scriptures. It's time for Bible with the Barbers. Now, here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome, welcome to the Bible with the Barbers on this Friday. It is the first Friday of August. It's August 6th, and it's also the Feast of um, the Transfiguration. This is a solemn feast day in the church. We celebrate that moment which Christ takes Peter, James, and John with him up on the mountain and is transfigured before their eyes. So we want to look at that gospel passage and what it means for us. I want to thank all of our listeners, for all those who are joining us, for um, Stations of the Cross Radio and all the little radio stations who pick up our signal. Thank you so much. Thanks for those who watch on Rumble, on Facebook, um, whatever social media platforms you pick us up on, and those who um, have our app. And if you don't have our app, just go to virginmostpowerfulradio.org website and go ahead and download that app. And it's on your, your iPhone. If, if you have an iPhone, you just go to the App Store or, or an Android. Go to the App Store and download the app and get the free app so that you can listen anytime. And we, all of our shows are podcasts, so anything you've missed, you can go back and review. Um, so well, we want to begin by asking the angels to join us here. Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus Dominus, Deus Sabaoth, Pleni Sunt Celia Terra, Gloria Tua, Hosanna in Excelsis. Benedictus qui venit in nomine Domini, Hosanna in Excelsis. And the gospel today, um, this year is year B in the Sunday cycles of A, B, and C. So the gospel is from Mark. This um, event of the transfiguration is included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But we're going to read from Mark, Mark 9, 2 through 10. Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzlingly white, so much such as no fuller on earth could bleach them. Then Elijah appeared to them, along with Moses, and they were conversing with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus in reply, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He hardly knew what to say. They were so terrified. Then a cloud came, casting a shadow over them. From the cloud came a voice. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus alone with them. As they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them not to relate what they had seen to anyone, except when the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves questioning what rising from the dead meant, the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him up on a high mountain, and he's transfigured before his eyes, and Moses and Elijah are there conversing with Jesus. Now, the gospel of Mark is, uh, Mark was the he was the excuse me the secretary for Saint Peter, so he wrote the gospel as Peter had preached it, and it's interesting because um, the the second reading of today's mass because you have two first reading two readings before the gospel you have the book from the prophet Daniel, and you have um, a, from the letter of Peter the second letter of Peter, and in the second letter of Peter Peter says 
We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. And you notice that um, Mark says to him, Mark says, when he recounts this, he says, he was transfigured before them and the clothes became dazzlingly white, such as no fuller on earth could bleach them. It's not, it's not a trick. Nobody could have made his clothes dazzling white. What happened was, as Peter says in his letter, we witnessed his majesty. They were witnesses of his Godhead. And as somebody said, um, it, it was, in one sense, it was no miracle. The transfiguration wasn't a miracle. What was the miracle is that Jesus walked around Galilee all the time and wasn't transfigured, <laughs> that he hid his divinity. Remember even Moses, after Moses would speak to God in the meeting tent, Moses would have to cover his face when he came out because he was glowing. His face was glowing with the presence of God and the people were afraid to approach him. He had to call them and say, no, it's okay, you can approach me. And they were terrified. In the presence of God, in the presence of goodness, absolute goodness, and God is absolute goodness, all evil is brought to the light of day. And because we're sinners, we shy away. We want to hide from the presence of God. It's oftentimes why we commit sins at night under the cover of darkness where we think nobody sees. Well, God looks into the heart and he sees everything in our heart. There's nothing in us hidden from God. So he took Peter, James, and John. And it's interesting, why Peter, James, and John? Well, Peter was appointed to be the head of the church. And James and John, um, the sons of Zebedee, for whatever reason, Jesus chose those two And the point of it was that he was going to be transfigured. This was to prepare them for the scandal of the cross so that they would be able to persevere in their faith through the scandal of the cross. He chose these three. Now, these three are the same ones who saw him raise Jairus' daughter from from the dead, remember? Only Peter, James, and John were allowed to go into the house of Jairus. So they get to see things that no one else sees. They get to see Jesus do things that no one else do, that no one else gets to see him doing. None of the other apostles, not no one else, but none of the other apostles, because they are to be a primary witness to the church. And of course, Peter is made the head of the church. He's he's the visible head. He's the one appointed by Christ. And what is it now? Um, in addition, that's going on on this mountain of transfiguration. Moses and Elijah are there. Well, Moses, the, the, the great prophet who led God's people out of Egypt, whom God promised, I will raise up a prophet like you after you are gone. And Moses had said this. And so Jesus is that prophet. That, but he's more than a prophet because he's God present among us. And Elijah was the, great, the great, greatest of the prophets. He was the prophet of all prophets. So... They're conversing with him. Now, in this particular um, version, it doesn't tell us what they are conversing about. And I believe it's in the Gospel of Luke. They're conversing about his, his exodus, which is about to take place in Jerusalem. And maybe that's actually in the Gospel of John. No, it's in the Gospel of Luke. Because in the Gospel of Luke, and behold, the two men conversing with him who appeared in the glory, spoke of his exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. So he, they're talking about his passion. 
and his death. And in the midst of this talk about his passion and death, his divinity shines through and is no longer veiled. And the apostles don't know quite what to do. They're, they're, they're overcome with what they're seeing. And then a great cloud overshadows them. And they, again, in the presence of this tremendous goodness, in the presence of God, you know, it was said that no one could look at the face of God and live. So how can we look at the glory of God? Remember, uh, Moses wanted to see, or was it the prophet wanted to see um, the face of God, and, and God said, no, you can't. But it was the prophet, and, and I'll let you see my backside. So we can't look into the face of God and live. So these apostles are given a glimpse into the glory of God that Jesus Christ is truly God-made man. He's the God-man. He, from the first moment of his conception, his human nature is united to and informed by his divinity. So um, he's a man beyond all other men, but he's truly man. He really did take to himself a human nature. And so the apostles are going, going to see this vision in order to be strengthened for the scandal of the cross. And again, the cross is always a scandal. We're always trying to walk away from suffering. We're always trying to tell the Lord, well, work a miracle for me, you know, just work a miracle for me and, and, uh, and then I'll be better. <laughs> no, honey, it doesn't work that way. We need to do it moment by moment, step by step. We need to get rid of our faults one at a time, weed them out. We need to do the hard work of practicing virtues. We have a body, and the body has to come to learn to trust God and to love God and to know that God is its true good. Because you see, the body has many faculties, and every faculty of the body seeks its own favorite food independent of the good of the whole. But we have an immortal soul, and that immortal soul, our body and soul are made for union with God. In heaven, we will have our body. We believe in the resurrection of the body. So we need to bring our bodies along, and that, that's a process. It takes time. It takes time. And even people who've had miraculous conversions still have to work at fighting the tendencies that, existed, that exist in their flesh from past sinful behaviors. You know, they don't just go away. So, you know, God, moment by moment, tries to draw us close to himself. So they're there, and they hear the voice of the Father. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And that word is addressed to every single follower of the Lord or every single person who thinks they want to follow the Lord. We have to listen to the Lord and listen to him to the point where we're not just hearing what he says, but we're letting it sink into us and change us and transform us. We're not dunghills covered with snow. We're God's dearly beloved children who are being transformed into the living image of his son, Jesus Christ. Our humanity is supposed to be transformed to look like the humanity of the Son of God. So we want to you know, seriously look at this passage and meditate on it and ask the Lord to penetrate and possess our stubborn <laughs> intellects, wills, and, and bodies to come along beside and start living this union with God to which we are called. Clock is running down. Thank you for joining us on Virgin Most Powerful Radio for Bible with the Barbers on this first Saturday of August. We'll be right back. Don't go away. 
Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome back to Bible with the Barbers on this Friday, August 6th, the Feast of the Transfiguration, which, by the way, really ties in closely to what we want to talk about today because we want to talk about the dignity of man. And this comes from Genesis And I want to read to you in Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, how was man created? In the image of God. And it's interesting, in Genesis, we see that first hint there, that God is not a solitude unto himself. He says, let us make man in our image, after our own likeness. And he doesn't just make man a solitude unto himself. Male and female, he creates them. So we're made in the image and likeness of God. This is a tremendous dignity, and I say it ties in with today's reading, today's feast from the gospel, because you see, what the apostles saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory of God shining through the humanity of Christ. Now, the humanity of Christ is united to the divinity in a very unique way. But we too are called to union with God. And in the letter of John, John says, Dearly beloved, we are God's children now. What we will later be has not yet come to light. But when it does, we know that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, it doesn't pertain to the dignity of man that he should become a God. No, we're not going to become a God, but we will become like God. We will become images of God, and we will contemplate the glory of God for all eternity and be transformed from glory to glory, even as we are now in Christ, being transformed from glory to glory, as Paul put it in one of his letters. Our greatness, our dignity comes from being created in the image of God. We were made by God, and we were made for union with God. God desired that man should live in an intimate, personal communion with himself. Not just man as the male of the species, but man, male, and female. When it says man here, he created Mankind, he created humankind. Male and female, he created them. So gender differentiation, God made male and female. But the dignity is, this is a complementarity. A complementarity that, which is pointed out beforehand. Um, it actually doesn't, isn't pointed out there. It's pointed out later because what happens? We have a second count of creation in Genesis 2. 
And it says that in the days that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant had yet, no plant of the field had yet was on the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. There was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up and and watered the face of the, the ground. Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Okay, so God breathes into, he creates man out of the dust of the earth, breathes into him a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east where he put man that he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made grow every tree that was pleasant of sight and good for food. And the tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then it goes on to talk about how the Lord God um, took the man and put him in Eden to till it and keep it. And he commanded the man saying, you may freely eat of every tree except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you shall not eat it for the day that you do you shall die. And then the Lord said, it's not good for the man to be alone. So I'll make a helper fit for him. We're already at Genesis 2 verse 18. And so then God forms the beasts and he brings them to Adam and Adam calls them by name. But Adam doesn't find anyone that's fit for him among the animals. Adam, the first man, Adam. Oh, Bobado. I hear a baby. Adam doesn't find anyone fit for himself, anyone who's a fit partner. All right? So the Lord God caused a sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, he takes out one of his ribs, he closes it up with flesh, and he creates a woman. He builds up a woman. And then he brings that woman to Adam. And Adam says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of her man. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, were not ashamed. And so we learn the dignity of human beings. We're made in God's image as persons to be loved. We are loved by God. And we're made for union with God. But he doesn't create us to be all alone. Adam had to discover that he was alone and he needed someone like himself. And, and so he realizes the animals are not a fit partner for me. And then God creates the woman. Now, Adam's life totally depends on God. And this is part of our dignity as human beings, that everything that we are is gift from God. Our life is total gift. Our relationship with each other is total gift. So we are made to build one another up in the Lord and to grow in that image of God and to to bring that image of God, to treat one another in that way. I heard the end of the Terry and Jesse show and Father Murr was talking about this man that he knew that he said every time he was talking to you, he was always looking over his shoulder to see who else should I be, who else is in the room that I might need to talk to. So he's not really looking at you. He's not respecting your dignity as a human person. So when we see other persons, we need to recognize them as unique individuals created in God's image as persons to be loved. And we need to reach out to others. We need to be in union with others. We need to be, this is part of our dignity as human beings. And it's interesting, um, you know, a lot of people in our day you know, we have science, we have technology, we have all this fun stuff. And, you know, the, the, whole, the whole theory of evolution came up 
in the 1800s, Darwin, and um, you know this idea that maybe man evolved from a lower creature. Well, you know that's all fine and good. You know, science. There's nothing wrong with science, but we have to remember something as Catholic Christians. We don't need to look to the world and science for our answers. We need to look for God. And remember something. Man, when he's doing science, isn't making a world. He's discovering truths about a world that was made, that God made. God is the one who made the world, okay? So when man studies science, he's uncovering truths. If he's coming across truths, he's uncovering truths that God made. Now, the interesting thing about the theory of evolution is there's no evidence to support it. There is absolutely no um, evidence to support that any species ever evolved into another species. As, as much as it's taught in the schools and they use a lot of things, like I remember once the Time Life series and, and the narrator said, the polywog, here we have it, the missing link. The polywog turns into a frog. It it evolves from being a polywog into a frog. Um, really? Have we ever known a polywog that didn't turn into a frog? Or is a polywog just a baby frog that's growing up into an adult frog? Just like when a woman becomes pregnant. And, and we watch now, we've seen, we have a window into the womb and we can see the development of the child as it grows. And the little baby, when it's, you know, when the egg and the sperm come together and the little baby is first, you know, infused with a soul by God, it doesn't all of a sudden take the shape of a, of a human, of an adult human being. It takes time. Now, by week 14 of your pregnancy, 12 or between 12 and 14, your baby has the shape of an adult human being. Everything's there. 10 fingers, 10 toes, arms, legs, all the interior organs, everything's there, the exterior organs, the head. But the baby's still growing. Again, the organs are still developing. So, you know, the polywog is not the missing link. The polywog always turns into a frog. So it didn't evolve into another species. It's just a baby. It's just a baby frog that's developing and growing into an adult frog. Just as the baby human being growing in the womb is a baby growing into um, infancy and then eventually, given the chance to live, will grow into adulthood. But, you know, modern-day theologians and sometimes scripture scholars um, like to talk about, you know, well, um, is Adam a myth? Um, and, and what does it mean by myth? What do we mean by myth? Um, uh, just a story made up. And some of them seem to think that, well, maybe maybe he was a story made up. And it's interesting because um, Pope John Paul II, in his Theology of the Body, gives us an insight into... The early meaning of myth. In the theology of the body, the, and I have Michael Veldstein's con, um, uh, Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body by John Paul II, Michael Veldstein's translation. And on page 157, um, Pope John Paul II writes this in Theology of the Body. Mythical language. Myth does not refer to fictitious, fabulous content but simply to an archaic way of expressing a deeper content. So when, when, you know, when the church says that, there's a, uh, that Genesis 1 is a myth, she's not talking about a, a fantastical, we have to read scripture in their historical content, context. Okay, So the, the Hebrews had an idea of myth, but their idea of myth was not, not a fictitious story that was made up to explain something they didn't understand. 
It was a story to explain a deeper, deeper content. And what are they trying to explain here? They're trying to explain the dignity of man, the unity that should exist between man and woman, the dignity of man as male and female, and his call to be united to God and to his fellow human beings in, in relationship, that man was made to be in relationship. And that specifically, the fit partner for him in marriage is, is a woman. For, for the male, the fit partner is a woman. And for the woman, the fit partner is a male in marriage. That the two of them are to work together to build a family, be fruitful and multiply, and the man shall cling to his wife. So th- there's a great mystery going on here. And the Hebrews were not, you know, borrowing pagan myths with which to explain things they didn't understand. Remember, the writers of Scripture, even if they took things, seemed to have taken things from the writings of people around them. They were inspired by God. Scripture is God's holy word. It's not just the words of men. And it's not a science book, by the way. It's not a biology book, either. That we have more on the dignity of man and whether or not Adam was just a myth or was he a real person. (laughs) Thank you for joining us on Bible with the Barbers on this Friday, August 6th. We'll be right back. Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's t- okay, welcome back to Bible with the Barbers. Thank you for joining us on this Friday, August the 6th, 2021. The Feast of the Transfiguration, the first Friday of the month. Remember to try and make a visit to Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament today. We honor him in a particular way because um, he asked the Sacred Heart of Jesus in his revelation in St. Margaret Mary, asked that uh, First Fridays be dedicated to his heart. So, and his heart is present in the Eucharist. In the Eucharistic miracles that have occurred in the world, um, the, the tissue is living heart tissue. So we're talking about the dignity of man created in the image of God. And we're talking about whether or not Adam is a real person. Well, we have an interesting um, thing in, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, page 359. They give a quote from a sermon by St. Uh, Peter Chrysologus. And in that quote, he says, takes its origin from two men, Adam and Christ. Oh, St. Paul says that the human race takes its origin from two, two men, Adam and Christ. So Paul, in the scriptures, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is referring, referring to Adam, okay, a real person. The first man, Adam, The first man, Adam, he says, became a living soul, and the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The first Adam was made by the last Adam, from whom he also received his soul, to give him life. The second Adam stamped his image on the first Adam when he created him. This is why he took on himself the role and the name of the first Adam, in order that he might not lose what he had made in his own image. The first Adam, the last Adam. The first had a beginning. The last knows no end. The last Adam is indeed the first. As he himself said, I am the first and the last. So Paul in his letter where he talks about this, Adam and Christ, the first man, Adam, became a living soul and the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. And he's, here it is. Adam 
was created in the beginning to be the man from whom all the human race would descend. And so, yes, there was a first man. Adam was his name. That was the name God gave him because that was his nature, Adam. And, and so um, that he existed, well, the scripture says he existed, first of all, in Genesis, which is not just a myth. It's not just a made-up story, uh, cleverly concocted myth it, it, to, to try and explain something we don't understand. It's the inspired word of God that tells us that God is the one who created man directly. And this is what the church has always taught. Um, and, and what's interesting is I find that, you know, sometimes we forget our history. And it seems like modern theologians have forgotten a lot of our history and even our bishops and, and things that they say. Um, they act as if because of a theory, the theory of evolution, that somehow we as Catholic Christians have to rethink our faith and adapt it to this world. And that's not to be done. And, and here, here is the, um, you need to read the encyclical Humani Generis by Pope Pius XII, and it was promulgated on August 12, 1950. Pope Pius XII, Humani Generis, H-U-M-A-N-I-J-E-N-E-R-I-S, or generis. But it's generis, generis, because the, the I in Latin, by the way, is long E, so um, it's not an I. It doesn't sound like I. It sounds like E. So generis. Um, and what he, he discusses the whole problem here of, you know, the science, that we have this modern science. And, and so um, we, can't, we should be able that many theologians and bishops and teachers of the church, um, unfortunately, are acting like, the world has to adapt itself. I mean, the church has to, excuse me, the church has to adapt itself to the world now. And we have to take into account all this technology and these new discoveries of science. Well, wait a minute. Man cannot discover anything in science that contradicts what God made. And when man studies science, he's studying what God made. So if man is honest in his discovery, he won't discover anything that's contrary to the scriptures. So the problem, you know, evolution is a theory. It hasn't been proven. They haven't found any um, fossil evidence to support it. Absolutely none. As a matter of fact, there were, unfortunately, anthropologists who um, d deliberately falsified evidence to try and support it. But the deal is, as Catholic Christians, we look to the Lord and we study science and we don't denigrate science but at the same time, you know, it, it's kind of like, well, I guess an example would be the whole Galileo thing, okay? Galileo said, oh my gosh, Genesis is wrong because, uh, you know, God put the stars in the dome of the sky and it's, it's not just a dome sitting over us. There's a whole universe of stars. There's a whole bunch of stars out there that, you know, and, and, and it's not that the, the sun revolves around the earth. It's the earth, the earth is revolving around the sun and, 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 um, the sun is standing still. And, and so, you know, he's saying, well, obviously the scripture is wrong. And then, by the way, that was Galileo's problem. He was saying that the scriptures were wrong. Well, you know, again, Genesis 1 is not an astronomy book. Yes, it's telling us that God made the universe. Okay? 
And it doesn't say, there's nowhere in Genesis 1 that it says <laughs> that, that the sun revolves around the earth. And um, the deal is, um, Galileo thought he observed something. What's interesting is even Galileo didn't have full knowledge of the universe. And here was the difficulty at the time. And I, I, there was a physicist who told me this years ago, up until the 20th century, if you tried to do the math of the universe, you had to use the earth as your reference points. You had to have a reference point in order for the math to work out. And you had to use the earth. If the scientists hadn't figured out how not to use the earth as the reference point. So mathematically, the earth was the center of the universe up until the 20th century and space travel. At which time, this physicist explained to me, that it became possible to use any celestial body in the moon, the stars, anyone. You could, they, found, they found a way to move the reference point and still make the math work out. So it, no longer, it was no longer a fixed reference point that the Earth had to be the center mathematically in the 20th century. Does that mean that um, then the Earth becomes unimportant and the fact that the Son of God became man on this Earth is unimportant? No. <laughs> it just means that science has to redo their math. And you see, Galileo couldn't do the math to prove his theory that the Earth revolved around the sun. He didn't know the math. And the mathematician at the time said, well, it works the way it works, and I don't have, I don't know how to, re I'm not going to rethink it. I'm not, I don't know how to rethink it. Well, it took him how many years? Galileo was in the 1500s. It took him another 500 years before, not until man was trying to go out into space, that he finally figured out another way. So it's not like Tycho Brahe, the mathematician, was, was being negligent. Um, and, you know, but so just because <laughs> we think that science is showing us something different, we need to take a deeper look. And we don't need to rethink our faith and redefine our faith. Okay? So just because we think that maybe there might have been an evolution of species, that doesn't mean we have to redefine our faith and say, well, you know, there really wasn't probably an Adam. He's just a myth. No, Adam's not a myth. Adam is a real man. And in this encyclical, Humani Generis, number 37, again, what happens is people come up and say, well, obviously, if, if, if man evolved from a lower species, then there would have been a series of evolution all around the world. So how could you have one single man as the beginning? And what the church has always taught is that at some point, even, even if you believe evolution, at some point, the only reason that a man existed is because God took an immortal soul and infused it into the body. And then he created man and gave him intellect and will, the ability to reason and the ability to love would set him aside from all the other creatures, totally set him aside. He still shares bodiliness with the other creatures, but he's totally different. And so it was called, you know, the theory of evolution talks about a polygenism. That is that there, were, there was more than one man at one time at the very beginning. Well, no, the church says no. In the question of another conjectural opinion, namely polygenism, the children of the church by no means enjoy liberty. 
For the faithful cannot embrace that opinion which maintains that either after Adam there existed on this earth true men who did not take their origin through natural generation from him as from the first parent of all, or that Adam represents a certain number of first parents. It is in no way apparent how such an opinion can be reconciled with that which the sources of revealed truth and the documents of the teaching authority of the church proposed with regard to original sin, which proceeds from a sin actually committed by an individual Adam and which through generation is passed on to all and is in everyone as his own. Okay? So the church has taught the doctrine of original sin because in Genesis we learn that man sinned against God. And we learn also that God promised the Savior. You know, what was it John, uh, the saint says here in, his, his, in the section of the catechism that the second Adam took to himself the role and name of the first Adam in order that he might not lose what he had made in his own image. So when man sinned, God was in danger of losing him. And God didn't want to lose him, not for God's sake, but for man's sake. That's how great our dignity is. God loves us so much that he sacrificed his only son. You're listening to Bible with the Barbers on Virgin Most Powerful Radio on Friday, August 6th. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Well, welcome back to Bible with the Barbers on this Friday, August the 6th. And again, we're talking about um, the dignity of the human person created in God's image and whether or not Adam was a real person. And it seems evident from the teachings of the church that Adam is a real person. And there are other people who can, you know, who might purport opinions to the contrary, but they're not teaching you Catholic truth. There was one Adam and one Eve. There's one set of parents from whom the entire human race was generated. And this is the, what the church has always taught. And this is, it follows necessary from the doctrine of original sin because man really sinned. He really offended God. And so the first man, the first Adam and the first Eve really sinned against God. They fell from grace. And that sin is really passed on to their children by generation. That's what the church teaches and has always taught. And remember again, the church that Jesus Christ established, the Roman Catholic Church, is the authentic interpreter of the scriptures, of God's holy word. And the scriptures are God's holy word. And the Roman Catholic Church is not just the Latin rite. The Roman Catholic Church has, I believe it's 22 rites, and I will have to look that up for you. But I haven't had a chance to do that. I've been a little busy lately with my grandson, which has been a joy. He's a great joy. But to keep in mind the dignity of the human person, that we are made in God's image as persons to be loved, and we were made by love, God is love, for love, to be in union with God. And he made us, he made 
Adam and Eve for one another as partners in marriage. That doesn't mean every human person is called to marriage, okay? Not everyone is. But marriage has a great dignity, and that dignity was not lost in the fall, nor was the command to be fruitful and multiplied lost either in the fall or the flood. The command stands, and that is this openness to life because of the dignity of the human person. Every person, every human person is created directly by God. When it says that God made Adam out of the, the dust of the earth and formed him and blew into his nostrils the breath of life, it is saying that God, that the gift of human life is a gift that comes directly from God. No one else can make a human being a human being. Only God can, because only God can infuse into the body of a human an immortal soul. And we are not some duality of body and soul at war with each other. We are a complex creature made of body and soul. Our soul is essential to our body and our body is essential to our soul. We were made to be a unity. It is God who did that. It's God who designed it. And when he creates Eve, he doesn't make her out of the head of Adam, that she would be above him, nor does he make her out of her feet, that she would be below, below him. She makes, God makes her, God makes her, he makes her out of Adam's side. She is equal to Adam. Different, but equal. And, you know, it, it's, it's so beautiful, the, the, what God reveals to us in his word. He speaks to us through his scriptures. There really was one man who was the father of the human race and one woman, Eve, who is the mother of the human race. And they really sinned, unfortunately. And because of that sin, they lost grace and they passed on to all of their children that original sin. Which, with which we are all born, which is why baptism is necessary even for infants so that they can be brought into the family of God, brought into that living relationship with God through God's grace. So life is a free gift from God that he gives to us. We don't give it to ourselves, nor did Adam create Eve. Adam finds himself alone in need of a partner like unto himself and then when he realizes there's no, there's no creature that God has made that's like unto me in the animal kingdom or the plant kingdom, then God makes Eve so that Adam has a partner like it. But it's God who makes Eve, just like he made Adam. So there was one Adam and one Eve from whom the entire human race generated. And yes, I absolutely believe that because the church teaches it. And the scriptures are God's holy word, and they are inerrant. In their original language, they are inerrant. Now, you can have a bad translation. You can have a bad copy. Or there might be something you don't understand or I don't understand. But God's word is God's word, and it is holy. And the church has clearly defined that. And there, you know, there are documents by the popes that, that teach us, you know, Providentissimus Deus by Pope um, uh, Leo the Thirteenth, and then Humani, um, we, well, Humani Generis is the one we're looking at today. But Divino Divino Aflante Spiritu, which is also by um, Pope Pius the, the Twelfth, and these are on Scripture and the the um, the sources of Revelation. And we can't just just disregard the sources of Revelation, but specifically on Scripture and 
and the inerrancy of Scripture, and that Scripture is truly God's holy word. And we need to come back to that in our Catholic teaching. Now, Vatican II didn't take us away from that. Read the document, Dei Verbum. Read it. (laughs) Vatican II didn't break with tradition. (laughs) There's all kinds of footnotes there. It's all connected with tradition. We need to know what the church teaches because we need to understand our faith. And, And Jesus Christ is the one who established the church. He didn't establish many churches. He established one church. And I realized, you know, he uses sinners, and that's a scandal. That was a scandal. Believe me, do you think it wasn't a scandal to the, to the apostles that Judas betrayed our Lord? And our Lord made it evident that he knew that Judas was going to do this, and he let him do it. Well, that's how we, we have to come to understand free will. Are we going to respond to this love that God has given to us? He offers to us. He offers to us eternity of joy and bliss, union with himself. But are we willing to give up our sins to have it? Are we willing to walk the path of the cross? Are we willing to offer up all of our sufferings in union with Jesus Christ to help redeem the world? Are we willing to endure scandal and shame? Or are we going to complain like the people in the desert? You know, we had the readings from Exodus this week, you know, and what happens? The people, oh, why did you take us out of Egypt when we had so much to eat and we were so happy? Yeah, we were so happy at slay, as slaves that we were crying out to God every single day to be delivered. And then when God delivers us, we get out and there's, oh, God, why did you take, why did you have this Moses guy take us out into the desert to die in this desert? We could have died in Egypt as slaves. I mean, we would we were happy. Why didn't you just leave us there, you know? And then when they didn't have water, the same thing. They keep complaining and complaining. And, and even that, even the manna, they got tired of the manna. Well, honey, you wouldn't have had to have manna in the desert for 40 years if you'd have done what God said when you first got to the Holy Land and gone in there and conquered the place and trusted in God to fight the battle for you. Joshua sent Caleb and there was one other scout who came back and said, no, we can do this. God promised us. But there were 70 other scouts who had gone in and said, oh, no, we can't. They're giants. We can't do this. And so the people listened to him and they grumbled against God. And God said, fine, you're going to get what you want. You reconnoiter the land for 40 days. And because you won't go forward and take it now and trust me, you're going to go into the desert one year for every day. 40 years you will wander in the desert and this entire generation will die in the desert. Are we going to complain against God? Or are we going to say, you know what, Lord, you have a better plan. You have a plan. And I'm going to trust in your plan. I'm not saying it's easy. Day by day, we have to renew that. And sometimes moment by moment, we have to renew that commitment to trust in the Lord, to trust in his divine plan, to trust in his providence to take care of us in the midst of what seems to be an impossible situation. And believe me, there are many, many, many who have saints of the church men and women of God, of every denomination, who trusted the Lord and did what was right in the face of evil? Or are we going to say, well, you know, we don't know about Genesis. It's just a myth. There wasn't necessarily a St. Adam. Well, you know what? You're right. There may not be a canonized St. Adam. I don't know. Not everybody who gets to heaven is canonized. Everyone's a saint who's in heaven, except the angels. They're angels. And we're not going to be angels in heaven. We will be saints. (laughs) we'll still be men with our bodies. We will have our bodies in heaven. They will be glorified. But there is Adam 
the first possibly I, if the first Adam persevered in grace. Now remember, there's 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 no Cain there. Cain, I don't think Cain didn't show any signs of repentance, so he might not be there. He killed his brother, and his brother's blood cried out from the soil for vengeance, and he didn't show any signs of repentance. Now maybe he repented after God punished him, and he was sorry for what he did. I don't know, but he tried to justify himself in the beginning. So if we repent of our sins, we'll get there. I hope Adam and Eve repented of their sins. By the grace of Jesus Christ, through his blood, they can get to heaven. But that there was an Adam from whom the whole human race descended and an Eve, Adam and Eve, one set of parents, not many parents, only one. The entire human race descended from them. And yeah, every idea has consequences. And you might feel uncomfortable with the consequences of that idea. But that is the truth. That's not just an idea. It's the truth. God made one man and one woman from whom the entire human race descended. That's what's clear in Genesis. And it's what's clear from the doctrine of original sin taught by the church, which happens in Genesis. The original sin occurred in Genesis, where Adam and Eve allow their trust in God to die in their heart. And is that what we're doing now? Allowing our trust in God to die in our heart. And because we want to feel like, oh, well, I'm up on all the science and I, I know all the, the, the modern uh, teachings, see, and, and I'm all um, vogue and, and chic and, and in, in step with the world, then I can say, well, you know, there's not necessarily a St. Adam. We don't really have to believe that there was just one man. Well, I don't know if that's what the person was trying to say who said that that was posted somewhere on, on uh, social media this week that supposedly there was a bishop who said that? Well, you know what? You're right. I don't know if I don't know that Adam was ever canonized or will ever be canonized by the church. But there was an Adam and an Eve. God made Adam directly and he gave him his name. He was the first man. And God made him and he made him in his image. And we're all made in God's image. So we bear a great dignity within ourselves. Let us carry ourselves with that dignity. We are made in the image of God. We are to image God in all that we do and bring his love to the world. We don't want to bicker with each other or fight, but we do want to acknowledge the truth that the church teaches and not pretend like modern technology and modern science has a better idea and the church needs to change her teaching because that's not what the church teaches. Thank you for joining us on Bible with the Barbers. Thank you for your financial support. Thank you for your prayers and your sacrifices. We have that uh, sex and honor conference tomorrow. I hope everybody's coming. We hope to see you there. Pray for us. Keep us in your prayers. Thank you all of those who sacrifice for us and offer your sufferings for us in particular. It means a great deal. We couldn't do this work without your support. God willing, we'll be back next week with more on Bible with the Barbers.